Laodicea. Do we identify with Laodicea, yes or no? What, why do we identify with Laodicea? Why? It's the last church, right? It's the church that's complacent, that, that thinks it has it, and it sort of does, and sort of having it's one of the worst situations in the world, and that, that's very much my life. I was the good kid, right? I was the kid that got the pats on the back, but, but there's a saying that good is what? Best, worst enemy. I wanted best. I wanted this intimate experience with God, but I was good, and it was the good that was really fighting the best. I wanted to go on to more, and this, and what we're talking about today really took me there. Colossians chapter 2, we'll start at verse 1, it says, For I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea. And for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, so there's some that haven't even, haven't even seen him yet, he says, and this is really, really pay special attention to verse 2. It says, that their hearts may be encouraged, being what? Knit together. Knit together in love. Remember that. Knit together in love. And attaining to all riches of the fullness of the assurance of understanding, to the knowledge of the what? Mystery of God. So what he's saying here is he's saying to, the, to these churches, what I really want for you is I, I want, even those that haven't seen me yet, I want you guys to be knit together in love by coming to a knowledge of the mystery of God. Now, that word for knowledge is not knowledge like, like I answer true or false on a test. That word for knowledge is experiential knowledge. It's knowing it and experiencing it as well. So what he's saying is, I, I really desire, those that I haven't even seen, I desire them to be knit together in love by experiencing the mystery, the mystery of God. By experiencing the fact that Christ came in flesh, lived a successful life on this earth, and, and went back to heaven and has been accepted in heaven. By experiencing that. Sounds abstract at first, but it gets very, very practical. Let's go on. Verse 3, it says, In whom are hidden, this is talking about God, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you, with persuasive words. And he goes on to sort of reiterate what he's already said. He kind of expounds on what's been said prior. Verse 5, it says, For though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. So he's saying, I'm not with you, but I'm with you in spirit. What's he saying? Is there some kind of weird spirit guiding them? Absolutely not. If someone says, I'm with you in spirit, they're talking about their ideas. I mean, what I've already done there is still having an effect, and you're still in my thoughts and mind. I'm still, I'm still focused on you. I still love you. I think about you. I pray about you. So I'm thinking about you, and things that I already left there, you're experiencing, so I'm with you in spirit. It goes on, verse 6, As you have therefore received Christ Jesus, so walk in him. That's important. He's saying, not, don't, don't just receive him. Don't just accept his salvation for your life. He's saying what? Continue in that experience. Walk in it. So let's talk about this a little bit in the mystery of God. I, I like the concept of walking. I think, it, I think it develops a really beautiful picture when we're talking about mysteries. If I was to ask, if, if I was to hold a small child up here and I, I handed the small child an infant to someone and I said, okay, I want you to drop this child, how many of you would do it? Like no one, right? Why? Because you know what would happen, right? They'd fall, they'd get injured. That's kind of a, some of you are thinking that's a sick illustration. But it, but it illustrates the point well, and that is that you know gravity. You know gravity very well. But let me explain something to you. Gravity is a mystery. We don't completely understand gravity yet. We've never seen it. We don't completely understand it, yet we know it. And the idea, now, now we can, when we know, we understand many things about it, but we don't completely understand it. So, so the idea of walking 
of walking, it makes perfect sense in describing the mystery of God because it's saying, it's saying live your life connected to something that you understand a great deal about that maybe you've never seen, but you experience intimately. In fact, it helps you, helps you stand up. And in, in today's world, people are saying, oh yeah, you know, like, biggest issues people have with God. Problem of good God, bad world, right? Why does pain happen here? So, they, so in essence, that can be deduced to, I don't really understand him. But you know what? They're being held up every day by gravity, which they do not what? Do not understand, yet they know it. And they're being held up. And another thing is, well, I've never seen him. He hasn't done this. If he'd do a miracle, if he'd do this, well, guess what? They've never seen gravity, but they actually what? Actually know it very well. We all know it very well. You walked in here. You're sitting here. You're experiencing it in this very moment. And so, and so that's, what, that's what Paul's saying. He's saying, I want your relationship to be intimate together. I want you guys to be knit together. Interesting that we're supposed to be part of a what? Remnant church. A cloth, right? We're supposed to be knit together. And he's saying, I want your experience with God to be like the mystery of God. I want you, I want you to walk in this experience. It's just like gravity. And they, and they knew that they, this concept wouldn't have been foreign to them back then. He wants them to have this ongoing experience with God that's life-changing. What verse did I stop at? I stopped at verse 6. Verse 7. Rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. I want to expound on that, but let's go on for the sake of time. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the traditions of men according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. So, so, so really would love to get into this because I love dissecting philosophy and showing how it can totally get us off track. But we're not going to do that today. But in essence, he's repeating what he said before. Don't be deceived. Now he's expounding on it. Don't go by the philosophical ideas of men. Don't, don't, don't go by the teachings of this world. Orient your life on who? Stay, stay oriented on who? On Jesus. Be... For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are what? This is absolutely key, this next part. And you are complete in him, who is the head of all principality and power. We're going to be talking about this concept of being in Christ. It comes up three times in what we've just read, the concept of being in. concept of being united by being in. What does that mean? Does that, does that strike any bells with anyone with anything else in the Bible? It's, it's throughout the Bible. There's one specific place where it comes up in incredible ways. I guess you can cheat and look at the board there, but John 17. John 17, 20. And while you're, while you're turning there, I want to tell you, this is... I didn't know this was my favorite chapter of the Bible, but my wife explained to me that it is my favorite chapter of the Bible the other day, and, and she's right. It is. This, this chapter... It's, it's been an encouragement. It's... It, it, this, this chapter is absolutely incredible. And the context is, if you look, it's a bunch of red letters, right? Because it's Christ's longest prayer in the Bible. And it's right before a bunch of black letters. Why is that? Because Christ is about to die. So this is Christ's last prayer before he dies. Do you think it's important? Yes or no? Obvious answer is yes. And he prays at the beginning for himself. And in the middle, he prays for his disciples. And then look at who he prays for after that. It says, I do not pray for these alone, this is for the disciples, but for those who will believe on me through their what? Through their word. Who's that? That's us. So think about this for a second. Right before Christ dies, his last big prayer, his biggest prayer in the Bible, right before he dies, his dying request to his father is about who? 
It's about us. My grandma just got out of open heart surgery yesterday. She's, she's older, it's a very risky thing. I've been text messaging back and forth. Um, before we left, I was actually at a different conference before coming to this conference. Before we left, I, I had so much to get done. I had packing to do, and we were over at my grandma's house, and um, I know what she was thinking, and I know what I was thinking, even though we never said it, which was, I don't really want to park, because this could be what, this could be it. I, I know what, I, I have that evening memorized in my head because it's important because it could have been what? It could have been the last one. It still could be. She's still on the ventilator. She's had issues with anesthesia. But, but here's, here's the point. When you're about to die, you say what's really important to you, do you not? And Jesus is saying what's really important to him. And at the end of his really important prayer, he's praying for you and I who believe on him through his word. Let's look at what he says. It's absolutely incredible. Verse 21, that they may be what? One. One. Had a talk about that last night if you stayed in the convention hall. That's a different conversation, but related to the same thing. That you may be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. What is he saying? He's saying something that Paul picked up on, right? I want them to be knit together, but the way they'll be knit together is by being what? Connected to us. Connected to me as, the, as this mystery of God becoming human. If they're connected to that, then they'll be connected to each other. And it's not just this point. It's not even just for a relationship. It is for a relationship, but it's not even just for a relationship. You'll see how that develops here in this, in this passage. That they also may be one in us, that the world may what? Believe that you sent me. So what Jesus is saying, the greatest evidence, the greatest evidence to the world, the world will believe. He's not saying it might believe. He says the world will believe that you sent me if they experience oneness with me that then knits them together to be one with each other. He's saying this this is the greatest evidence. And guys, this isn't just a place in the Bible. This is Christ's dying request to his Father. It goes on. I and them... I'm sorry, verse 22. And the glory which you have given me, I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them, you in me, that they may be made perfect in one. What kind of, what kind of unity does God want? He wants a perfect unity. And that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me. For, they loved me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. And here he comes. This is his final cry. O righteous Father. I and mean, that's, that's his name. I mean, the characters associated with the name very obviously throughout the Bible. The world has not known you, but I have known you. And these have known that you sent me. And I have declared to them your name, your character, your righteousness, and will declare it that the love with which you loved me may be in them. And what? I in them. Okay, when you, right now there's a big conversation about, about spirituality and, and, and this type of thing, like um, different types of prayers and stuff like that. And really, almost all of it, probably 90% of it, comes down to how you interpret the word in, which unfortunately you can't do this great little exegetical. I mean, I did, I tried. It's in, it means in. But Christ's last phrase and his biggest prayer in the Bible is that he would be what? In us. So let's talk about that. There's lots of philosophies about that. There's lots of traditions about that. There's little lights that float around and go in people's, into people in movies and stuff like this. That's not what he's talking about. 
Biblically, how does God get inside you? He literally wants to be inside you. And we'll say the Holy Spirit. So there's the Holy Spirit, like this, this kind of like God ghost that comes and, and lives connected with, with you. Is that what being in? Because everyone says the Holy Spirit. That's a good answer. It's a correct answer. But why is it the correct answer? Because the Holy Spirit guides us into all what? Truth. How did Jesus, how did the mystery of God actually happen according to John? John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the what? And the? Was with God and the word what? Was God. So how does God get inside you? Through words. What's words? Words are sounds that communicate ideas, right? So the way God gets inside of us is by putting his ideas, his thoughts, inside of us. It's very simple. It's basic. But Christ's dying request was that his ideas, that his thinking would be what? Our ideas and our thinking. He wanted to be connected, and, and, and it's not just abstract, weird thing. It's very, it literally, what happens when you have ideas? It affects how your brain works, right? It literally affects the physical makeup of your brain. The way for God to get inside of you is through his word, through his ideas, and through his thoughts. And it is so important to God that his dying request is that his ideas and his thoughts will be in us in such a, in such a way that the world, that it'll have an effect of us being knit together. Remember that in concept of the remnant. It's being knit together and the world will know that the mystery of God happened. That, that God came, lived in, in human flesh a successful life and then went back to heaven. He's waiting on us. He's looking to us. Uh, a verse in the Bible, and this is the one that I came to when I was down on my knees back at, um, back at Bass Academy my year, trying to figure out what am I going to do next. Changed my major too many times already. So what am I going to do? I'm on my knees. I'm like, God, you've got to show me. You've got to make it simple for me. I've gotta, I, I want the basics. Give me the simplicity of how to know you. Deduce it to the smallest factor. Don't make it so small that it's not the correct molecule but give me the smallest molecule so that I can know. I want a model of how to know you. And this is what God brought me to. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Most of you probably don't even need to, to read this verse from your Bible. It says what? All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. And that's an absolutely beautiful concept there because most of you know that it's not actually, the, the, the translation is not necessarily correct there. It should be kind of a hyphenated word. All Scripture is God what? God breathed. How were we created? We were formed, right? And then he did what? He breathed into us, right? And then we fell from what we were originally created for, right? We're in need of being re-what? Recreated. And so God's way to recreate us is to give us his, his thoughts and ideas, to give us his word. So all scripture is God-breathed, and it says it's profitable for four things. And at the end, it says doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness, that the man of God may be what? Perfect. Complete. Depending on your terms. Same, same thing. That we can be perfect, thoroughly equipped for every good work. You see, my life, I was a Christian, Seventh-day Adventist, and I'm saying, why can't I do it? Why do I have things that I keep struggling with and I keep failing? Why do I keep failing? That was the, that was the thing keeping me from best. I was good, but I wanted to be best. I wanted, I, wanted, I wanted to be perfect. That's what the Bible calls for. But how do I get there? Because I'm certainly not. And then as I'm, I'm sitting there kneeling on the floor, I started to think, okay, 
It says that Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for what? For four things. And then the end result is what I'm after. So let's make the simplest, the simplest interpretation of those four things as possible. Are you with me? All Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. So I said, God, I'm going I'm to take this and I'm going to say, okay, what's the simplest, what's the most basic doctrine of the Bible? Very, very simplest. And this is what, this is what came, to, came to my mind. The simplest doctrine of the Bible is God is. That's what I did first, but I changed it after that. God is. He is love, but the fact that He exists, the fact that there is a God and that He exists, even before love, this is a simple, I totally agree God is love. I don't disagree with that at all. And you're going to see something cool with that in a minute. But the fact is, the simplest, the most basic teaching of the Bible is that God is. There is a God. Okay? Now, reproof. The most basic reproof of the Bible is what? I'm not. Most basic thing. What God is, Jeff isn't. I've had very real experiences with that throughout my life. What God is, Jeff is not. And for those who may be listening, I'm just going to describe this for a second. What we're doing, I'm drawing, I'm drawing a cir- ultimately a circle on a, on a board. And if you, at home, kind of had a circle, at the north position, you'd put God is. At the west position, you'd put I'm not. Doctrine, basic doctrine, God is. Basic reproof, I'm not. What's the next one? Doctrine, reproof, correction. What's the most basic concept of correction in the Bible? It would be that God gives. The most basic. Like, once again, I'm a guy on my knees saying, God, give me the simplest thing possible. I want the simplest possible thing. The most basic correction is what I'm not, God still gives to me. And then instruction in righteousness. The simplest, most basic concept of instruction in righteousness would be I give. So for those listening, at north position is God is. Our doctrine would be God is. Reproof would be at west position, which would be I'm not. Correction would be at south position. God gives. Instruction in righteousness would be at east position. And it would be I give. And then it's just a very simple, this is just a model, a very simple model for a guy in college on the floor saying, God, how in the world do I know you in its simplest form? So now let's take what was said before. God is what? Love, right? I heard that from someone. I'm not what? I'm not love. But God gives me what? Love. And when God gives me love, then I have what to give to other people? I have love. And if you've done it unto the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto who? Me. What do we ultimately give God? It's such a beautiful concept that we can actually give something to God. But what is it that we give Him? If I love my wife, if you guys see me and, and my wife interact, and you're like, oh, you know, like I just, you guys have such a beautiful relationship or whatever, what ultimately does that do for God? It gives Him what? It gives Him glory because He created it. All the things that we could do in the world, all the things that we could give in this world is ultimately, if we're, if we're giving what God has given us, we're ultimately giving God, giving God glory. And you can take anything you want and put there. We're going we're to talk about that. In fact, my wife can come up now. She's going to be talking about that. You can talk about God as joy. I'm not joy. But God gives me joy. Then I can give joy. 
Anything you want to put there, it gives the most basic concepts. And, we're, and this is a, what this is is a, is a model of thinking. It's a model of decision making. You don't know how many times I've had the good thing in my head and tried to do it and ultimately done something demonic. I've tried to love and I've really tried hard and ultimately done something bad. Why? Because I'm not recognizing that I'm not love and that in order to be loving, I've got to get it from someone who, who has it. But I try so hard and I have such good intentions. You've heard the phrase, the road to hell is paved with what? Good intentions. I've experienced that. I've hurt people when I was trying to love them and that is so confusing. But this model helped it become less confusing for me. I'll turn some time over to my wife. Uh, yeah, basic way of thinking. It is, um, it's in the mind. It's in our thought process. Like the verse in second, um, or Philippians 2, verse 5, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ. It's in the mind. So the basic concept, God is, I'm not, God gives, I give. Here's a basic example, practical application in my own life, just recently, at an academy, working at an academy in the office, we get really busy this time of year. Um, registration is Sunday. We're getting tons of applications from students, parents calling, making sure they got what we need, and on the phone 24-7, literally it feels, <laughs> but it's exciting. And so we're, it's high energy, it's constant high energy on academy, and well, one day I got a phone call and it was a parent who was upset. Um, her student actually graduated this year, which, is, which was exciting for her, but she called and she was upset. She was angry about um, something that came in the mail regarding her, her, her daughter and was basically attacking the administration. And I'm on the phone, I take a deep breath, thought goes through my mind, hmm, what am I supposed to do in this situation? Um, the, next the assistant next to me looked at me and she rolled her eyes because she knew who the lady was. The first interaction, oh, sorry, the first interaction I've ever had with her in this um, type of situation. Well, I said a prayer, I calmed her down, I assured her I was going to figure out uh, or try and figure out what was going on. We got off the phone, I did my best to communicate with the, um, with the principal and the, tr um, the previous treasurer and worked out some solution for her. Called her back, calmed her down, and told her um, within a week we will have a, um, in fact, a solution and explain the situation, what was going on in the school. Our internet was off at a time and just was kind of chaotic. Well, it was interesting because she calmed down. She, she allowed me to speak and she listened to me. I got off the phone, I was thinking, wow. Wow, I was patient. That's pretty basic. I actually did it right that time. I was patient. But it doesn't always work that way. I mean, if you think about it, sometimes we're not patient. Sometimes we can give too much patience that in return can hurt us or someone. And I want, we're going to switch the mic again because we like to give different experiences from our own lives. And then as you're sitting there, be thinking about this thought process. It is let this mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. In fact, in our devotional life with the initiative of revival and reformation, reading the scriptures every day, going to the word, reading the spirit of prophecy, having those, those ideas and principles fresh in our minds so that way each day we can um, go about applying them.
Okay, I'm just going to hold this thing here so that so we can make this transitions happen happen quickly. We chose that example because it's very simple, very simple. You could analyze Hitler on this thing, but, but let's keep it simple. Let's keep it into things that we actually have happen on day-to-day experience. Me, I can be patient too. I'm not as prone to it as my wife is. Let's be completely honest. I, I, I have to. It's not as naturally a part of my experience. However, I'll give you an example of, of where, I, where I get outside the bounds of what God has given me, but I'm more patient than what God would intend for me to be. Men have this habit of being work-a-what? Workaholics. We're patient with all the demands at work, and then we get home, and where's our patience? We left it at work. I've, got, I've been in that trap. I've been the guy who, I mean, I work at Academy. If any of you know anything about Academies, you know that that means we do about 100 things. At least it seems that way. Recruiter, chaplain, teach Bible, teach um, preaching classes, organize weekend events, organize mission trips, you know, and then, and then when everyone's like, oh, good, it's summer, now you have the pressure of numbers. Do you know what that means? Enrollment. What's enrollment going to be? Because if we don't have enrollment right, people will be let go. You know, will it be, you know it's like, it's just, and these are my friends. You know, it's, a, it, it's this pattern, and I'll get real patient with that, and the demands put on, onto me, but then not be patient at home. And this is, and this is a concept I want you, want you to really think about. Here's the two places that we, as humans, quite obviously interact on this circle. It is not uncommon for us as humans to even something like patience, something that is good, to give outside the bounds of what God has given us. God, did, God has not intended that I am so patient at work that I, that, that I don't have anything for at home. God didn't give me that. So when I, even when I do a good thing, I have to make sure it's within inside the boundaries of what God intends for me to give. Does that, does that make sense? Love. How often can we be so loving to this one person that we, that we ignore, this, ignore the other? So there's something, I mean, the word in psychology, the catch word in psychology today would be boundaries. Boundaries are, boundaries are things you set on your own life. And it's possible to give more than God originally gave you. It's also possible to not give what God originally what? Gave you. I've had, I've had students before, as a chaplain, this is shameful to admit, I've had students come in, I really need to talk to you, and I set up a time, and then I'm so patient somewhere else that I, that I, miss, that I miss the appointment. And everyone makes mistakes, right? But if that becomes a pattern in my life where this student is more important to me than this student, is that, is that just an okay mistake? Absolutely not. Because God, God intends to give, he intends for us to give what, he, what he's already given, and he, what he gives is perfect. So we, so we have to be very, very deliberate in our giving to think, is what I'm giving what I have been given already? Does that make sense? And, and we get outside of these boundaries all the time. And, and what ultimately happens, where this would be boundaries, this would be idolatry. Why do I give more? Or why do I give beyond what God has, has given? How many, how many people have witnessed someone get angry about trying to get people to do something that is good and righteous? I've been there. I've been the guy that got, that's gotten angry before. I'm, way, I'm giving something far beyond what God would have me give, but, but the goal is good. Because what's happening then is I'm not recognizing that I'm not. I'm thinking I am a little bit, right? 
that's, that's the problem with, uh, with idolatry is we ultimately, all idolatry is ultimately self-worship. It's not worshiping some little, some car that we like or, or some idol on the ground. It's ultimately a way of, of uplifting ourselves. And so when I get angry, it's because I haven't put myself in the proper relationship with God. I haven't recognized that, that God is, I'm not, and I have to stay submitted to what God is. I have to, I have to recognize that I don't have what God has, but I can only give what God gives. And being in that mind frame of constantly keeping ourselves in check, what is God given and who is God? And based on those things, I can have thoughts and have interactions. I keep my thoughts and my actions in check based on what is God and, and what is God given. Um, did you want to say something else about that before we... Yeah. So this is, this is all conceptual at this point. I would title this... A model of agape. Agape being what? God's love. Now, in, now, we could easily, in fact, my wife and I love ethnic foods. Love ethnic foods. I mean, you tie all of it. Like, it's a good thing I'm a vegetarian because if I wasn't, I'd be eating everything. I just, I, we just, I like to try anything. There's a few I haven't had. It's like I have a bucket list of restaurants, you know? And um, we'll say I love Thai food, right? And then at night, I'll say, I love you. Is that the same thing? It's unfortunate that the English language makes those things the same thing. The, 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 the language in the time of Christ, uh, Koine Greek, did not make those things the same thing. I would say, I filio you, or I storge you, or I eros you. Those are all very, very different concepts, okay? So we're going to talk about the, the, the God's love is agape. But God intends... For the three human loves, storge, filio, and eros, he intends for those three things to be human interaction through which God's love flows. Does that make sense? So in other words, when I have the agape experience happening in my life, when I have storge, it will be ultimately God showing love to the world through me. Does that make sense? When I have filio, it will be ultimately God showing love to the world through me. When I have eros, it will ultimately be God showing the, world through, uh, the love through me. Let's talk about what storge, filio, and eros are. Storge looks just like this, only you put a human in this spot. Is a human ever love? No. But a human who has allowed God to love them and who follows, him, who follows his example can put themselves, as long as they're experiencing this, they can then pass on love. Does that make sense? That would be like, like, a, like a mother's love for a child. That's storge. Why someone chooses to be a nurse and another person chooses to be a librarian? Why? It's storge. Probably the best word, and it's a horrible word for this because it's just not very strong, would be affection. Some people choose this, or I'm passionate about this, and I'm passionate about this. That, that, would, be, that would be the concept of storge. If I told everyone, in fact, let's try this. On the count of three, I want everyone to point at something in the room. One, two, three, point. Okay? Pretty much everyone, there's probably one or two of you that may be pointing at the same thing. Pretty much everyone's pointing at something different. Why did you choose that? That's storge. Okay? Does that, does that make sense? Okay, now, now I want you to um, talk with someone close to you, and I want you to point at the same thing. Okay? On the count of three, so you've got to talk quick. On the count of three, I want you to point at the same thing. One, two, three. Okay? That's filio. Filio is the root word for what? Friendship. So when people share mutual storge, they're both pointed towards scuba diving, 
My wife and I scuba dive together, so we have a special interaction. We both love scuba diving. We both have our individual storge for scuba diving, but we have a special relationship because we scuba dive together. Does that make sense? Okay? The best example of this in the Bible would be the church. Love for lost souls. If I individually have a ministry loving lost souls, and I come, come beside Dr. Alva, who also has a love for lost souls, guess what? We're going to have a unique relationship called friendship because of our mutual storge. Our mutual storge will then breed filio. And that would, look like, that would look like on this circle, and I'll draw it out here in a minute when my wife starts talking. That would look like, like Jeff and Dr. Alva, and then two lines, and then... Chicago is not. He lives in Chicago. Let's say we're ministering. Jeff and Dr. Alva are love. Chicago is not. Jeff and Dr. Alva give love to Chicago, and then the end result is Chicago will give love. And and it's conceptual at this point, but there's very real examples of it. Eros. Hit this one very quickly and then then, um, give the mic over to my wife. Eros is, is the root word for erotic. The love between a husband and a wife. It's, it, it, to draw a model here, you would have to take this, flip, bring it out, and two people, and then turn it around. So you have arrows, like all the arrows pointing at each other. I'm not going to ask anyone to give a demonstration of this today, but it would be like this if I had you guys do it. It would be like two arrows, like, like people pointing straight at each other. I'm giving you story gay at the same time you're giving me story. It's this, it's this mutual focus, focus on each other. So these, are just, these are just models. But the intent is that these three human loves be the cups through which the water of God's love flows. Yeah, so we're going to be going over storge together. And that is, like he said, children is the best example. We don't have kids of our own, even though lots of people think we should already because we've been married for four years. But we're praying and waiting for the right time. Um, But I love kids. I'm from a family of six. I'm the second oldest, the first daughter, so I'm like the second mom. Um, I absolutely love kids. I'm involved with our Eager Beaver ministry in our church. And with that, it's amazing how this model right here, God is love, and having that connection with God, that relationship and understanding and experiencing that God loves me, that God loves you. It's incredible. We, all, we each have a different testimony. I would love to hear all of your testimonies because it makes God so real to me to hear how God has led you in your life and the struggles that you're going through, even right now, maybe you're questioning um, some things and you want God to answer you, to give you an answer. And, the, and right now we're looking for those answers. Well, Storgate, with, the, with using the children as an example, Dylan, a second cousin of ours, um, comes from a pretty rough upbringing. He doesn't have any biological parents to take care of him. Um, he's actually living with his um, grandmother right now. Um, but we've been able to take care of him sometimes, you know, babysit him and that sort of thing. And he's learning. He's this high-energy young boy that just wants, to, wants attention. He wants love. He's eager for that love. So with, that, um, with this storge right here, he drew it on the board, using the same model as was described before with the God is, I'm not, God gives, I give. God loves me. I've experienced that love. I'm studying that love even more so today, reading the chapter of love in the Bible in 2 Corinthians 13. So God is love. I'm not love, but he gives me that love that I can give. Well, since Dylan needs love and I give him love, I'll tell you a story. What does love look like? 
Love is patient. Love is kind, right? I'll give you a real specific um, story. Dylan is high energy, wants things right away, comes into the house one day um, after playing outside. It's hot in Mississippi. It's about 98 degrees or so. <laughs> it's hot. He comes in, runs in the house, does not take off his shoes, and dirt's tra- you know, being tracked down the house, and he runs into the kitchen, and he's just opening the cupboards looking for something. And I look at him, and I'm thinking, okay, I could get angry right now because I've already told him like five times <laughs> that day to take his shoes off. Well, I looked at him, and I said, Tillin, do you remember what I asked you to do this morning? And he looked at me, and he said, oh, yes, yes. Yes, yes, I remember. And he goes back, he takes off his shoes, and then without me asking, he goes and he grabs the broom and he sweeps up his mess. And I looked at him and I thought, wow, thank you. That is awesome. You know, that's, that was really kind of you to do that. Well, there's different scenarios in which I was able to give him water when he was thirsty or whatever. But I tell you, I'm, I'm not a parent, but I know just from hearing other parents and just seeing, I don't know it, but just seeing the joy on the parent's face, when you see your child do something kind to someone else or they're courteous to someone else. I saw Dylan just recently in the church. A little girl was um, thirsty and she was asking her mommy, 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 I need water, I need water, I need water. And Dylan, without even coming to, you know, to, you know, know letting them know they're getting water, he runs into the kitchen, grabs a glass of water and brings it to her. He said, can she have this? And the mom looked and said, well, that was really kind of you. Thank you for bringing that. That's an example. I mean, when we give love to someone, when a parent gives love to their child and instructs them in all righteousness, they can give back. That it gives. As, As teachers at an academy, our dream and our goal is youth rightly trained at Bass Memorial Academy. What does that look like? It's in the mind. It's in the thought processes in the mind. Um, what they think about, what do they learn about? I want to read a quote from Ellen G. White. I, I was searching, I was just reading about what does it mean to have this mind be in you? Well, something that we need to be careful of as human beings is pride, right? Pride of human wisdom. Because there's lots of thought processes out there, philosophies and ways of thinking and ways of teaching that we can get caught up in. And something that we need to um, be careful is Paul. I mean, Paul even knew that this was an issue. And so Paul declared to Timothy that the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers, having itching ears, and that they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned into fables. So in other words, that love, that this model right here, gets lost. I just wanted to mention that. I was going to mention it earlier, but just a side note, this model can get lost, and instead of God is wisdom, God is knowledge, and continuing this cycle, and then going into the loves of the children. Instead, what happens is we lose track of this, and we just think that I am knowledge apart from God. I am truth. And we instruct our young people in the wrong direction. And we can see that with the school systems, some of the school systems today becoming um, more like the world and not, not, up, not upholding the love of God for their students. Um, Jeff's going to describe the next love. 
um, just want to say that this, this position right here, when we stand as love before other people, it's probably one of the most dangerous positions in this whole world. A dad. I mean, it's, it's been really cool interacting with Dylan this summer. He's been around this summer. It's been really cool, but it's incredibly dangerous. Because what if I get it wrong? You know, what if, what if I, in my desire to do good, what if, I, what if I give him beyond what God would have me give him? Then I'm not giving him an accurate model of the person that actually is in this position. Does that make sense? When, you, when, when you're a nurse, you know, when, when you are to be love and your patient is not, but you give something that then ultimately allows your patient to give. It, it's a dangerous position to be in, but the reality is we're all there. We're called to be there, and if we take God's name, we're saying, I'm willing to be like you to the world. I'm willing to be a Christian, a, a Christ follower, implying that I'm going, I'm going to be like him. It's an incredibly dangerous, dangerous position. We don't have a lot of time, so we're going to kind of speed through the, the other two loves. Um, I, I want to I really outline, though, kind of reiterate the idea that when I'm giving, which is, Storge would be an example of me giving, I cannot, I, I, I am not truly representing God if I give beyond what God has given me to give or if I give less than what God has given me to give. And I might have the best motive in the world, like loving my child, but if I give beyond what God has called me to give or if I give less than what God has given me to give, then I'm not being like God. Nurse to their patient, chaplain to their student. When storge happens, if I'm not, if I don't have agape, if I don't have this circle spinning in my life, I'll make an absolute wreck of this circle. You know, the, the ultimate, when we follow our own lust, storge becomes lust. It becomes our, our greed. Maybe eros would be lust. Storge becomes greed. Instead of trying to give, we're ultimately trying to take. And, and, but God has a model for us. He has a, a system of thinking, of making basic choices that lead to basic actions. Um, Philio, briefly describe that. Storge is a part of it. When you share a mutual storge, you have philio. The, I, I tell my students when they're, when they're at Bass Academy, you know, it's a, it's a small fishbowl. When, you when, when you're at Bass, you're friends because you're in the same fishbowl. When you go to college, you're friends because you're the same kind of fish. Does that make sense? You, you, have, you, you share the mutual focus. You share the mutual, your, your people that are, you may be a chemistry major and a nursing major and a music major, but you're all friends because you share something. When I was in college, rock climbing was really big. How much better would it have been if, if, if our focus had been like GYC talks about, being the last generation on or finishing the work. And there are people in college like that. But, but you come together for this mutual focus, then you have this incredible, incredible relationship. And in the Bible times, they considered this love the greatest of loves, of human loves, when you shared that mutual experience because you had a mutual affection for something. We don't have time to get into that, but I just can't reiterate enough that even in your, the reason problems happen in a church is because we don't have boundaries in our own relationship with God, so we get the, mo the model of being friends wrong. Eros, very, very briefly. Eros, two circles, uh, two, a, a concept like this, or this, or it would be a smaller circle, obviously, but with the arrows pointing back and forth at each other. You know why love goes wrong? Why does love go wrong? I mean, I, I, I was 
I was good, remember? I didn't have the best experience. I was looking for best, but I didn't have best. I dated people that I ultimately hurt and that hurt me. I didn't date anyone while I was in college because, because, I mean, while I was in high school because while I was an eighth grader, and I know this sounds absolutely ridiculous, that's because it is, but the reality is people, I had this, this girlfriend that broke up with me, broke my heart, right? And I felt bad about things and, and, and I was just hurt. So I didn't date anyone through high school and I got a really good name for that, but I didn't have the best motives. The reason I didn't date was because I didn't want to hurt or be hurt, right? I didn't have the best motives that I could have had. But why, why does love fail? Maybe because God didn't give it, God didn't give it to us. And we have to keep that relationship in check. When we, we want so much to give eros, but we have to ask the question, is, is agape spinning in our lives? Did God really give us the opportunity to have that relationship that, that, he's, um, that we're seeking? When we got married, it really didn't take... It, we were married within seven months, I think. And it was like, whoa, you know. It came down to... Does God want this or not? There's attraction. We cut it off. I, mean, I would cut it off and she would cut it off. We're like, I'm not thinking that way because that's only led me to pain in the past and it's only led me to hurt others in the past. It ultimately came down to we had one question to answer. Does God want us to unite our lives or does God not want us to unite our lives? And after you have that experience, after God gives you something, then the arrows can spin correctly. And if there's ever any issues, you always have the thing to go back to. God created it, so God's responsible for it. But when you get into a relationship that God did not give you, we joke at GYC that people know what, what time the different um, events took place based on when they broke up with someone. Because there's always a call at GYC. If you're not in a relationship that's of God, then you need to go home and cut it off. It's because you're talking about this. You're ultimately headed towards a pact that will absolutely destroy you or absolutely lift you up. And you have to ask yourself the question, did God give permission? Is, is God guiding and just because he starts guiding doesn't mean he'll stay. People make choices. People guide different ways. We don't have a lot of time to, um, to go into that. I, I wish we did. This is actually something that take a whole week, as you can, you can tell. This is a seminar, not a sermon, just for the record. Um, I want to say something real quick. Let's see. Something testing. Can you hear me? Okay. Real quick about um, arrows is... In all of these, what we need to be careful is the I'm not turns into I am. Eros, like he said, lust, well, I am love. That's a train of thought we can get into our minds. We get into relationship, and we get into relationship, thanks for the reminder, and we think that we are love. I remember in a previous relationship, actually, before, um, about six months before, Jeff and I met. I was in a relationship, and one day, well, communication was getting pretty rocky. He wasn't calling me as much, and I was wondering, what's going on? And I called him, and I just simply asked the question, do you love me? And there was no response. And I said, well, that's not a yes. (laughs) And it just tore me up. But that actually didn't tear me up as much as the next question. And I said, well, do you believe in God? And he said, no. Now, it is a big mercy, exactly. I say that a lot because I'm just thinking, wow, that was like a backstab at that point. Because I'm thinking at this point in my life, I was having a revival of the teachings that my, my parents have taught me as an Adventist and was going back to it. And I was studying the great controversy and just becoming in love with God and his love. And so I was sharing it with my boyfriend at the time. He was not a Christian. 
or not an Adventist. And so I was sharing it with him, and it was it went totally away. But I kept thinking, why? How can he not love me? Love is so beautiful. We, we loved each other. We said we loved each other. We said we were going to get married one day. Well, why? Because it became an idol. It was, I am love. Not God is love. How does he love? How can I love him? How can he love me? As God has given and shown us love. Instead, we were just loving each other from the lust of the world from the, the lovey-dovey butterfly feelings that we see when we watch love movies and love songs, and we think, well, can that be mine? The reality is what's lasting is God and this model. These can only be successful, can only bring us success when we are prayerfully submitting to God every day and studying his word, asking him daily, God, I am not, for today, I don't have patience I'm not patient. I don't have love. I'm not love apart from you. God, give me your love. Give me your patience. And studying the word of God, prayerfully submitting, he gives it. Not this mystical experience, but a solid foundation of how God gives it to us. So it's hope. It's hope for all of us. Every single relationship, every single position that we are in, these will be successful because the word of God is there. It's for everyone. It's available for everyone. Um, in, our, in our original verse, our first verse, it says that the, the mystery of God will be completed. The idea is, is that the mystery of God is Christ coming in human flesh, living a successful experience such that He was accepted back in heaven. But being completed, why did he come in human flesh? For the mystery of God to be completed is for us then to let him be in us. He comes in us through his word. So, so he didn't do that just as like this little um, show to the universe. He did it for a very specific purpose, and that is to be one or to be in you and I. He, he wants to be intimately connected. So the mystery of God being, being completed is when the people of God respond to this mystery that, that we can experience. We respond to that and then have and then have these dangerous, dangerous places of standing before, before people that don't know God reflecting God. Having be, being God to people, being, being like God in a, in a church, being like God in our marriage. And we'll never, these places are so dangerous, yet we all sit, we all sit in the, these relationships. And we'll only be successful if we're experiencing God is, I'm not, God gives, I give. And recognize that when you love your wife, when you love your children, when you love the unlovable, you're ultimately giving glory to God. The verse in, in, in Revelation you want to go with me there again, Revelation 10.7. It ends with something kind of interesting and telling. It says, The mystery of God would be completed as he declared to his servants the prophets. Would you think about that for a second? So the mystery of God, God coming in human flesh, living a successful life, and going back to heaven accepted, being completed, humans becoming one with him in this experience, that was declared to his servants the what? The prophets. The prophets. Okay, let's look at that for a second. Isaiah 60, 1 through, one through 3. Isaiah 60, 1 through 3. 
Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. God gives glory so that we can reflect it back to Him. God gives us love so we can give it back to Him. And the best way to give love back is to show it correctly, show His model correctly to other people. Arise, shine, for the light has come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and deep darkness the people. But the Lord will arise over you, and His glory will be seen upon you. The Gentiles shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. What Jesus said in John 17 wasn't anything new. He's saying, if they experience being one with me and one with each other, if they experience true agape and it spins out into the relationships of their life, people, kings, people who don't know me will come to get to know me from them. Kings will come and get to know me. It was, it's told in, in Isaiah in the, prof, in the prophets. Leviticus 16.30, incredible passage. Absolutely incredible passage. By the way, considered the greatest prophet, right? Who is it? Moses. You know, Moses wrote five books, at least that we know of. I believe he wrote um, at least one more. But he, he, wrote, he, wrote five, he wrote the Torah, first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. As you're turning to, to Leviticus 16.30, I just want to share with you something. It's in a chiastic structure, which means the first matches the last. The second matches the second to last. But guess what? Leviticus is in the middle. And Leviticus is set up in a chiastic structure. And guess what's in the very middle of Leviticus? The Day of Atonement. The day teaching the people about how to be one with God. How to, how to be knit together with God and, and thus with each other. Look at this verse, um, Leviticus 16.30. It says, For on that day the priest shall make atonement for you to cleanse you, that you may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. Amen. He wants to give us the same experience that He has. The concept of atonement was not just to get rid of sin. It was to help unite people with God and with each other. The prophets. So we talked about Isaiah, Leviticus. You can find this throughout the Old Testament. Let's look at Ezekiel um, 36. Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel 36, we're going to be looking at verse 23 and then verse 26 through 27. Verse 23 and then verse 26 to 27. And I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. And the nations shall know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God, when I am hallowed where? In you before their eyes. So when they can see my holiness in you, His holiness is His, his thoughts that lead to His actions. We can have God's thoughts. Even though we don't naturally have them, we can have God's thoughts. We can have God's ways that will ultimately lead to His actions. It's prophesied through, throughout, the, throughout the Old Testament. You could even look at Daniel. The most Adventist of Adventist texts. Daniel, Daniel what? 8.14. What? What does it say? So 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be what? Cleansed. In other words, there's coming a time when there'll be a time of atonement. And, and, and there was, the purpose of a sanctuary has never been the sanctuary. The purpose of the sanctuary has been the worshipers. 
The purpose of the sanctuary on this earth was so that the worshipers would understand and come to experience oneness with God. And now we have God in heaven interceding on our behalf. And when we unite with Him in that process, do you know, do you know what the investigative judgment is? It's God preparing us to be His bride. It's the most exciting thing ever. We tend to think of it as sitting there before a judge saying, okay, am, am I going to go to jail or am I going to go free? That's how we think of the investigative judgment. Absolutely wrong. The investigative judgment is God, Christ, saying, I want Jeff to be part of my bride. And by the way, God, I promised him in John 16, I'd send the Holy Spirit to guide him in all truth. And look, Jeff's responding to it. Jeff's, it's, it's happening. You can, see, you can see my love happening in his life. You can see it, God. That's what the investigative judgment's about. It's about God connecting with His people at a very intense time in earth's history of Satan trying to get us to be one with Him and God making everything available for us to be one with Him. Christ's dying request, I in them will be fulfilled. You don't think a father is going to ignore the dying request of his son? Absolutely not. But it has practical implications. It's going to actually happen. All of Scripture is about this. It's all about God becoming one with us. We'll close with, um, with Ephesians 3, 16 through 21. Ephesians 3, 16 through 21. Absolutely beautiful passage. And I, and I hope, hope all of you here today will, will remember that the only thing you can give, even the only good thing you can give is what God has first given to you. Because you're not anything that God is except He give it to you. But when He does give it to you, you have an enormous responsibility to pass it on to everyone who is around you. Ephesians 3.16-21 He would grant you according to the riches of His glory to be strengthened with might through His Spirit in the inner man, our thoughts leading to our actions. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you being rooted... Where, where does Christ want to be again? In your heart. In us. That you may be rooted and grounded in what? Grounded in love. You may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height. To know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge. To know the mystery of God the same way everyone in this room knows gravity to know it, to experience the mystery of God, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to Him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to Him, the power that works in us, to Him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus through all the ages without end. Amen. Christ's dying request must be in you. Revelation predicts in the closing hours of earth's history, the mystery of God will be completed. Christ came as a human being, lived a successful life, and went back to heaven, which is where He is now. And He can be in us via His Holy Spirit and His Word, putting His thoughts and His words in our minds that will ultimately lead to our actions. We are hopelessly, beautifully dependent on God. This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI, Adventist Layman's Services and Industries.
If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www.asiministries.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.